Well, Renus has been recommending a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. If you haven't read it, you should. It's wonderful, full of good stories about grace. Philip Yancey's a good writer. And he also wrote in this past year an um, autobiography um, that came out late last year called Where the Light Fell. And the book begins with the story of how Philip discovered the details around his father's death, which he somehow had never heard, and which he recognized um, had shaped his whole growing up years without him ever knowing it. So the story begins with a promising young man from a wealthy family and a woman, um, who, a beautiful young woman, who has committed herself to be a missionary in her mind, she was going to Africa because that's where you went in those days. And they met and they married and then they began the process of training and preparing for ministry and of raising financial and prayer support. And these, this young couple is the best of the best and everyone has very high hopes for them. And they're young, you have to understand, they're young and as they're preparing for ministry, they have two boys, they have Marshall, and then two years later they have Philip. When Philip is one year old, <clears throat> suddenly and incomprehensibly, his father is struck with polio. He's 23 years old. It's it, it isn't usual for someone his age to contract polio. In those days, it was much more likely that a baby or a child five and under would, would get it. And then if you did get it, only five to maybe 10% of people who got it would be 100% paralyzed. But your, George Yancey was one of the unlucky ones. No one knows how he got it, but its effects were devastating. Completely paralyzed, he's put in an iron lung. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but I spent some time looking at it and all that's sticking out is his head that person is completely paralyzed in the machine. Even his lungs won't work for it by himself. As that machine is breathing for him. He can't turn his head when his wife and children come. Most of them would have had a mirror there, like somewhere, so he could see what was going around him, but he could do nothing for himself. George is devastated. His wife is devastated. His family and his church are devastated. How could this have happened, everyone asks. Why this man who had so much potential for the kingdom of God? He was going to Africa, for goodness sakes. People wrestled with the unfairness of it. Why was it happening to this man? This family just didn't seem right. Well, the long and the short of it is that the family decided to trust some alternative medicine options and faith healing. So they took George out of that iron lung that was breathing for him, and miraculously, he hung on for a few days. But ultimately, he did not survive. And he left a grieving widow who determined that the only way to make sense of this loss was that God must have intended for her two boys to replace their father in ministry. And every choice she made from then on in was to make that a reality. Well, that, those are hard expectations to live up to. 
And when you read about Philip's growing up years, you realize why later he wrote so much about grace. When it's not part of your backstory, it becomes all the more precious. And it begs the question, how do you deal when life's not fair? When what happens destroys your dreams or it sidetracks good people? Have you ever heard yourself say, well, that's just not fair? And we all rail against it, don't we? And perhaps you came from a family that tried to make things fair between children or siblings. And maybe it's been ingrained in you that things should be fair. I personally did not raise my children that. I did not teach them that life was fair because, frankly, it's not. And uh, so they, my children were well prepared for the unfairness of life. <laughs> Didn't make them happy, but, <laughs> but knowing life's not fair and then being okay with the fact that life's not fair, especially when it hits you sideways, are two di very different things. Or we could ask Calvin. I love this. It made me laugh. So why can't I stay up late? You guys can. That's not fair. Well, the world's just not fair, Calvin. I know, but why isn't it ever unfair in my favor? <laughs> I said, he asks the right question. If it's going to be unfair, why can't I not be on the right side of the unfairness? <laughs> why are we talking about fairness anyway, you're probably wondering. Well, it's because we're going to read the parable of the vineyard workers in a moment. So I want you to keep your eyes open for it. So let's turn to the story. If you have your Bible, um, you can turn to that. It's in Matthew chapter 20. Or if you don't have your Bible, the words will be up on the screen. So Renus has been talking about three stories of things that were lost in the last few weeks. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. That story being the one we know of as the prodigal sons. And each story in its own way points to, the, to God, to the way God intently pursues and welcomes ones who are lost. And now Jesus is going to go on and tell another story because really, Jesus loved stories. As an aside, this is an aside. Eugene Peterson pointed out that the Holy Scriptures are story-shaped. Our reality is story-shaped. The world is story-shaped. Our very lives are story-shaped. And we enter this story following the story-making, story-telling Jesus. And we spend the rest of our lives exploring the amazing and exquisite details, the words and sentences that go into the making of the story, and find it chock full of invisibles and intricate with connections. Imagination is required. So perhaps today you'll need to use your imagination because you are invited one more time into a story. And this passage is one more of the many parables recorded by Matthew about the kingdom of heaven. So just quickly, let's remind ourselves about what the kingdom of heaven is. First of all, it's not heaven itself. And it's not referring to um, what people think of as the thousand-year literal reign of Christ on earth that people f have found in Revelation. And it's not actually referring to the church. It is referring, however, to the reign and rule of God in the hearts and lives of his people. So the kingdom of heaven is where God is reigning. So 
Just keep that in mind. So in this particular passage, the kingdom of heaven, or where God's reign and rule are, is likened to a landowner hiring individuals to work in his vineyard. And in this story, think of the landowner as a figure for God and the workers as the rest of us. So let's read the passage. Luke, not Luke. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Well, about nine o'clock in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, because no one hired us, they answered. And he said to them, well, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Well, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were first hired, they expected to receive more, but each one of them received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered them. He answered one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Ah, such an interesting story. So all those people sitting around in that crowd that day, they would have known the background and the setting for this parable, and it would have been totally familiar to them. They knew about large vineyards, and they also knew about people who, who depended on being hired daily to stay alive. And they are what we would consider day laborers, right? And it would have been a perfectly normal affair when they, were, when they got employed at the marketplace that they would have discussed employment terms up front how long they would work, how much they would get paid. And at that time, a denarius was the standard wage for a day's work, for a soldier and a field worker. And it was important that payment would be made at the end of the day because that was something actually laid out in the Old Testament law. I didn't know that. So in the Old Testament law, because God cares about the marginalized and those who are in need, People were, were, it was required that people would be paid so that they would be able to go home and buy food that very night. So payment happened every time, every day, every time someone worked for you. 
And though it strikes me as odd that the landowner kept going back to the market to find more people to hire over the course of the day, maybe that wouldn't have been so unfamiliar to his audience. And perhaps when he first went at six in the morning, he would have hired all the strong and the able, the keeners who were ready and available and motivated. And then depending on the urgency, he as the landowner uh, sensed about getting his grapes harvested, he obviously felt there was a need for more workers. So then he went back to the market, and maybe the people who were there now were the people who lived in an adjacent village. And there was no work there for them, so they walked over to this village and uh, then were available a little later in the day. Or perhaps the best and the strongest got hired first, but the elderly and the women and those with disabilities would have been left after everyone had chosen their laborers. And so as the day wore on, that's who was left standing there, the group with much less to offer. Or maybe that group included someone who was just plain lazy, who slept till noon and didn't show up till three in the afternoon, and maybe he was in that crowd too. We don't really know for certain why they weren't hired first thing in the day, but by the end, everyone is in the field and everyone is working. But then, the big surprise. What was normative, what people expected, and what was the usual procedure would have been for to begin payment with those who'd been hired first, right? So if you'd worked the longest, you came first, got your pay, you would have got your denarius, you would have gone home, and all would have been fine. They would have happily been on their way. But something else is going on here. So the landowner reverses the order and asks his foreman to go opposite to what was expected. Payment begins with those who are hired last, who work the least amount of time, and then in reverse order work up to the laborers who were hired first. So if you think about that in today's context, we are much more inclined to take a check. Does anybody even use a check anymore? I had to really look to find one. Take a check. This is a check for you guys in the balcony, if you've never seen one. Put it in an envelope seal the envelope and give it to your workers. And then nobody can tell what anybody else gets paid. So there's no chance of people comparing wages. But that's not how it works. Picture all the day laborers gathered around the foreman waiting their turn. And by paying first, the workers hired last, those hired first would have had the opportunity to not only see what was being paid to the others, but to then begin to anticipate that they were going to get more. And so they're, you know, they're, they're getting excited as payment is being given. We're going to get more, oh, happy day. And verse 10 says, so those who came, so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But if you remember, the landowner had actually struck an agreement with that group. That was in verse 2. And the Greek word for that agreement used here is symphonio. So it's the same word, or the root word, as our word for symphony. And the landowner and those hired in verse 1 were in accord with each other. They were in harmony with each other in their understanding. And, and then the verb is, the, the word is a verb, actually. So it's this... Um, active word that this has been settled it's been nailed down everybody's in agreement so even though they knew what they'd agreed to still they expected more because as we all know life is fair right ha 
Well, let's bring this into today. Imagine with me a manager who hires workers and everyone signs a contract and they're going to get $60,000 a year. And then two weeks before the end of the year, the owner hires a few other folks to do the same job and he pays them $60,000 as well. Unlikely, you say. Well, that's true. But if it were to happen, wouldn't people rightfully think, hey, that isn't fair? Or what if you worked for a company where you were the most deserving candidate for a promotion? And then when the promotion was given, they went to the newest person that had been hired and gave the promotion to that person. Oh man, you would struggle with the fairness of that, wouldn't you? Well, in and amongst all this talk about fairness, we need to remind ourselves that the point of the parable isn't about wages at all. It's about what the king of the kingdom of heaven is like. Or, to phrase it another way, what the God whom we follow is like. So when you think about God, what comes to your mind first? I want you to call out your answers. I'll repeat them for the people that are watching from home. But if you were to describe God, give me one word. What are the things that you say when you think about God? Yell them out. Love, grace, good, fair. Would you say fair? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I find myself, well, I've listed a whole bunch of things that I thought about God, and I, I didn't actually put fair. I don't, don't know if I think about God as being fair. Um, and and th that idea that God is concerned with giving everyone exactly the same thing all the time, no matter what, because that's what fairness is. It's what the workers in the vineyard were expecting, that there's somehow a straight line between what I do and what I get, or there's a straight line between what everyone else does and what they get. And at some level that is true because there are consequences for how we act. But when you think about the father in the prodigal son parable that we've heard about last, the last two weeks, you realize that Jesus is trying to help people think about God anew, in a different way. Um, that, that as we think about God and what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, he's challenging people to consider that God is actually better than you think. Ah, because fair means that I get what I deserve, but what if God is actually better than that? And he's challenging them to consider, um, well, that while they're busy thinking about how God needs to fairly treat everyone exactly as they deserve, as in punish and shun the wayward, like the prodigal son, while rewarding them for their piousness, God is busy about being generous in unexpected ways, and I'm going to suggest even scandalous ways. In one of the articles I read this week in preparing for this, um, the author called what God offers unreasonable generosity. Ooh, I like that. Unreasonable generosity. And unreasonable generosity falls for us in the category of grace. In our minds, we do believe that God is a God of grace, giving grace to those who are undeserving, giving grace to those who couldn't do enough to earn his love or forgiveness, giving grace to those who will never be able to repay him. That's what grace is. And we've all experienced it, right? But still, at some deep, unspoken level, 
I feel like surely there must be some limit to God's grace. He can't just go around giving it to the completely undeserving, can he? Can he? Give someone more than they deserve, like the generous landowner in today's parable? Like the father towards the wayward son, waiting with arms wide open? But to the person who's abused his trust? Or like the shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep at risk to himself? Why not just give people what they deserve? That's fair. It feels fair, doesn't it? Is it possible that we could even resent God's generosity? For me, it reminds me of the story of Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. I'm, I'm taking a sidetrack here. Stay with me. There's this group of Pharisees along with Jesus eating dinner when in comes a woman, and my Bible says, of loose morals. And she kneels at Jesus' feet and she pours expensive perfume on his feet and she's weeping and as her tears fall on his feet, she's wiping his feet with his, her hair and she's kissing his feet. This is completely inappropriate. It's scandalous. It's embarrassing. And uh, there's Simon, the host, and I can imagine him with his arms crossed and his body language just, he is deeply put out that this is going on in his house. Well, Jesus tells a story, which I am not going to tell you, except uh, I'll refer to it. It's in Luke 7. And uh, Jesus is getting at the same thing here. He says, there are two people, Simon, two. They both own a, owe a debt that neither of them can pay, but one person owes $500 and one person owes 50. And they both unbelievably get, get forgiven their debt. Which of those two people do you think will be more grateful? Well, the answer is obvious. Obviously, the person with the larger debt will be more grateful. That's his point, that this woman had a huge debt that needed forgiving. And he was about to do it. Even though the Pharisees would have much preferred to judge her and remove her from the premises. Jesus sees her faith and her love and he says, your sins are forgiven. And this is crazy, scandalous grace that God has towards people who turn to him, no matter who they are or what they've done. And like the older brother from last week's sermon, it drove the Pharisees bonkers. And you can hear them thinking, that's not fair. You can't just forgive someone's sin, especially someone that sinful. They don't deserve it. You're not playing by the rules. But Jesus does forgive her. Because where the reign and the rule of God is, where the kingdom of God is, where the kingdom of God is, there is this amazing, radical generosity. Like a father who takes back his wayward son. Like a landowner who way overpays his least deserving workers. And that makes so little sense to us. Let's just all say that. This makes no sense to us because we have almost no context in our culture where we see that kind of generosity or grace in action. Because we live in a meritocracy, right? Where based on my abilities and my talent and my hard work, I earn my place in this world. So in Canada, where we fall on the scale of things is not based on my social class because we don't really 
Well, we probably do have that, but anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Um, um, we are taught that from the time that we start breathing that we get what we deserve, right? Go to work, work hard, you get a bonus. Do shoddy work, you're going to get fired. It's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is the way things work. But then along comes grace, which is a very, very different system than, than merit. A system where somebody is offered undeserved favor. And not only that, but favor shown to the one who deserves the exact opposite. And if you and I don't check our hearts, we can find ourselves being like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Or like the workers who started early in the morning. And we think we're a little more deserving of God's generosity than others. We've tried hard. We've been better. We bent our own will to match what we feel God would want. Maybe given things up for God. We've been in the field since early in the day, as it were, working hard for everything we get. And then someone else comes along, someone whose life story isn't tidy, someone who's made bad choices or lived poorly or hurt others. And deep in our hearts, we think they should get what they deserve. Or, you know, if we're being generous, they should get less than we get. But the kingdom of God isn't like that, is it? Because the king isn't like that. His default is to be generous, to offer grace, to offer love to you and me, and to the ones we think least deserving. And part of the point of this parable is that the king wants you to know that he is unreasonably generous. He wants you to know that. He's saying, don't miss this. That's the point behind this parable. He's not doing it quietly behind our backs, being nice to the people that we don't think deserve it. He's flaunting his generosity in this parable. He pays the ones who worked last first. He wants us all to know that that's what he's like. So how does that affect you and me? Well, first, it should make us plain grateful that we are offered grace. I don't deserve it either, really. Jerry Bridges said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. That's us. We all need God's grace. And then, because we are following the one whom we want to imitate, we are invited to be people of unreasonable generosity, where we freely offer grace to the most unlikely of folk. So who might that be for you, I wonder? A family member? A neighbor? A colleague? A subset of our city's population? Someone who's been obnoxiously expressing opinions on things you disagree with for a long time and haranguing you because you disagree? or who has belittled you because of your faith or for some other reason? If those people aren't making efforts to do the right thing, do they deserve grace? Ah, Jesus says, where the reign and the rule of God is in the hearts of his people, their default will be grace. To the good people who are easy to extend it to, and to the people who we think deserve it less.
or not at all. And this is a hard teaching for we who feel like we are put together at some level. And it's such a piece of good news for those for whom each day is a struggle. And then Jesus ends his parable like this, because he's been talking about the kingdom of heaven, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's the upside-down kingdom where God is doing the unexpected and then he says, it's an, it's an adventure, join me. The king has a heart for the lost and the broken. And he's looking, he's out looking for them. And he's welcoming them. And he's being good news to them. That is the God that you and I follow. And all things considered, I think that's very good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your unreasonable generosity, for your grace that you extend to those we think are deserving and to those we struggle with. Thank you that you are better than we ever expected. Thank you that in your kingdom where you rule, your love breaks down barricades of hatred. Your love melts permafrosted hearts. Your joy cascades over bleak resignation. Your patience bends the world slowly. Your gentleness permeates even the most impermeable. And your goodness towers above all evils. Your kindness embraces our fear and your faith moves mountains it's you and all your goodness that we desire god may we be changed by your goodness and go out to share it with those we encounter this week in the strong name of jesus amen